All right, good morning, family. I'm, uh, I'm going to greet you this morning as family because uh, I'm going to break one of the golden rules. And uh, you can pick your friends, but you're stuck with your family, and you have to love your family, right? And, and we are a church family. Uh, so now you're thinking to yourself, Glory, which rule is he about to break? It's been said over and over and over again, don't talk about sex, politics, and religion. <clears throat> well, the good news this morning, do you want the good news? The good news is I'm not going to talk about sex, but I am going to talk about politics and religion. Today, we're going to talk about the most controversial and influential political statement ever made in history. Uh, the most quoted verse in the Bible when it comes to politics and the state, and a Christian approach to politics and the state. We're going to break down, we're going to unpack a few verses in Mark that have been decisive in shaping Western civilization, and we're going to discover their practical application for us and our lives today. To fully grasp the immense importance of today's text, we need to really understand the context in which Jesus said what he said. And what he said was the most revolutionary sentence that any religious leader had ever uttered. So let's give it due diligence. Where we pick up in our study of the book of Mark, Jesus has just returned to Jerusalem and only he knows that this is his final week. This is his final week to say everything that he needs to say and to make his final impact. He rides into Jerusalem on a donkey and he's cheered and people are, are waving palm trees and, and throwing their robes in front of the donkey as he rides, rides in and they're shouting, blessed be the king of Israel. Jesus has also been to the temple and he's overthrown the tables and is called the great temple of Jerusalem, a den of robbers. He is causing a stir wherever he goes. He is debating all the time and every day there are more conflicts with the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the conflicts, they're escalating. And as we hit Mark chapter 12, verse 13, two opposing factions of the day come to confront Jesus in the shadow of the great temple. Let's read together Mark 12, verse 13 to 17. Paying the imperial tax to Caesar. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew the hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back or render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Let's pray. Father God, help us to walk away this morning from this message equally amazed at you, what you've said and who you are. 
Lord God, open our hearts and our minds to what you're trying to say to us as a nation, as a Christian church family. Lord God, speak to us through these verses, we pray. Amen. So with the conflict escalating in Jerusalem, the Pharisees and the Herodians join forces. Two groups unite with the common aim of catching Jesus out. But these two factions are unlikely bedfellows. These are a highly unlikely partnership. The Pharisees and the Herodians are opposites on the political spectrum. The Herodians were supporters of the Roman imperial power. They were benefiting from the Roman occupation and they didn't want anything to change. The Pharisees were the exact opposite. The Pharisees were anti the Roman rule. They wanted the Messiah to come and liberate them from the Gentile overlords who had no right or authority in the promised land. These guys getting together, it's kind of like the EFF and Afro Forum joining forces, suddenly working together. It would have been very confusing for everybody witnessing the debate. What could they possibly have in common? What could bring them together? Well, what brings them together is fear. They are fearful but for different things. The Herodians are worried because Jesus is gaining traction. And if he is the Messiah, what happens if the Romans get overthrown? Then their corrupt political game goes down and they'll go down with it. The Pharisees, they're not worried about Rome being overthrown. In fact, they want Rome to be overthrown, but they fearful of Jesus's growing popularity as they see him as a false Messiah. They want to shut down his influence because his influence is increasing. And has, as his influence increases, their influence starts to wane. Their influence is decreasing. A common experience of fear and a common enemy cause these unlikely groups to band together with the common aim of taking Jesus down. They approach Jesus to find out what his politics are. They came to him and said, teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Do you see what they're doing here? As they approach Jesus, they start by gratifying him. They come to Jesus and they're all like, oh, Jesus, you great teacher. Oh, Jesus, man of integrity. Jesus, who doesn't fear people. Jesus, who knows God's will. Will you teach us God's will? They're fulfilling Proverbs 29, verse 5, those who flatter their neighbors are spreading nets for their feet. These guys are buttering Jesus up, not because they respect him, not because they love Jesus, not because they admire Jesus, but because they want to trap Jesus. Ironically, they're saying, you are a man of integrity and sincerity, but they clearly themselves are insincere and lack integrity. They're trying to trick Jesus and they're using flattery as a mechanism of causing him to not think clearly. You know, that's why people flatter. It's to manipulate. They're trying to manipulate him to serve their covert purpose. Because of their flattery, their flattery is then followed by the question designed to trap Jesus. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? What is your political stand, Jesus. 
That's what these guys are after here. They're bringing a particular hot potato political issue of the day, and they want to corner Jesus and make him pick a side. Either side he picks, he loses. Jesus, pick a side. Jesus, what party do you support? Now more than ever, we see political parties claiming to represent Christian interests or values. And in every election year, I hear people saying, oh, a Christian would never vote for the DA or a Christian would never vote for the ANC or only the ACDP really represents Christian values. And, and we find ourselves divided by political persuasions. There are Christians who believe that the second you become a Christ follower, you have to march along to a particular political agenda. Let's see what Jesus would do. Jesus is asked a revolutionary question, and then he gives a revolutionary answer. And as Tim Keller points out, in that answer, he points to a revolutionary revolution. A revolutionary question with a revolutionary answer, and then Jesus points us to a revolutionary revolution. Are you with me? I'll, I'll, I'll explain. A revolution that revolutionizes revolutions. Let's look at these three things, starting with the revolutionary question. We need to really understand this question. I certainly didn't until I did my research for this message. I've read this verse a million times. I've heard a dozen sermons on it. And the problem with familiarity with the verse is we start to brush over it. And we, we, start, we, we don't stop to think about why this particular passage has so much weight. Here comes the history lesson. The tax that they're referring to is not a general tax. It's, it's a particular tax. We know this because Jesus asks, asks for a denarius. The Romans, they had lots of taxes. They had taxes for everything. They had taxes for purchases, taxes for travel, and all sorts of stuff. But there was also a head tax, or here it's called an imperial tax. This head tax or imperial tax was an annual tax of one denarius, and it was a symbolic tax and an offensive tax. It was a tax for the privilege of being a subject of Caesar, for the privilege of being under Roman occupation. And when that tax was put into place, there was an insurrection. The Jewish people hated this tax. The tax was instituted 25 years earlier and it caused an armed revolt. The armed revolt was crushed by the authorities and the leader of the revolt was executed. Now, 25 years later, can you see what's happening? The Herodians and Pharisees knew the tax was unpopular and these guys were just trying to get Jesus into trouble. It's unpopular. So if he says, pay the tax, he'll get into trouble with one group. And if he says, don't pay the tax, he gets into trouble with the other group. And these chaps win either way because Jesus is in trouble. But then we find out that there is so much more to this. There is so much more at stake here. What they're actually asking Jesus is, are you a revolutionary? We're living under the Roman kingdom. You keep talking about the kingdom of God. Are you going to lead a revolt? 
On the one hand, if he says, no, don't pay the taxes, calling for an armed revolt. It happened 25 years before, and he won't just be unpopular, he will be crushed by the authorities. If he says, yes, do pay the tax, then everybody who has heard him talk about the kingdom of God would feel betrayed. They'd feel he'd been lying. Why, why would that invalidate his claims? His role as Messiah would be greatly diminished. His mission and his mandate would dwindle. When we read the Bible, we read it with our modern Western culture filter. We can think about the kingdom of God as being completely spiritual. We say things like, well, oh, the kingdom of God means God lives within my heart. He brings me inner peace. The Enlightenment said spirituality is just for your private life. You keep that to yourself. But most people didn't think that way. Most cultures, religions, and societies, they didn't think that way. And Jesus' followers didn't think that way. They figured your faith and religion had to do with all your life. So when Jesus quotes the Old Testament kingdom of God scriptures, it was not an inner peace he was talking about. The Bible tells us that the kingdom of God was going to deal with real peace, real poverty, real injustice, real suffering. And Jesus invokes that every time he talked about the kingdom of God. Like in Luke 4, verse 8, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. If Jesus says, go ahead and pay your taxes, his followers will say he's not worth following because he lied. He said he came to set people free. So he says, if he says, yes, pay the tax, he loses the people. If he says, no, don't pay the tax, he's crushed by the authorities and executed. Talk about being caught in a tight spot between a rock and a hard place. Well, he's damned if he does and he's damned if he doesn't. It's a revolutionary question. And they are asking him, are you a revolutionary bringing in the kingdom of God? And he gives a revolutionary answer. Here's how he answers. His answer is remarkable. I'm not sure if you've been watching the Zondo trials, but politicians, when they're asked a tough question, they squirm around and they give no real answer. They pussyfoot and, and they talk about this and they talk about that and they just don't answer the question. And it's maddening. It's, it's so frustrating. But you see that Jesus' answer doesn't leave anybody mad. His answer doesn't leave anybody frustrated. It leaves them amazed. Jesus' answer isn't a yes or no answer, and yet it's extraordinary. It just floors everybody. As Tim Keller points out, the best way to understand his answer is to notice what he is refusing to do. He's being tempted, but he refuses three things. He refuses political simplicity. He refuses political complacency. And he refuses political primacy. If you want to be a Christ follower, you need to refuse and reject these things too. Refuse political simplicity. Reject political complacency. And reject political primacy. Let's dive deeper.
refuse political simplicity. Notice that the, the Herodians and the Pharisees, they rephrase the question at the end. They ask the question twice. Is it right to pay taxes or not? Should we or shouldn't we pay the tax? They want a yes or no answer. They want a definitive and definite answer, one side or the other. It's obvious to the reader that Jesus doesn't do what they're asking him to do. He doesn't give a nice, simple answer. Now, Jesus, when he deals with our relationships with himself, he keeps things incredibly simple. His answers are totally straightforward and clear. Follow me, obey me, so it goes. When Jesus is asked the question about politics or about the state, he doesn't give a simple answer. He does give a balanced answer, a nuanced answer, almost a paradoxical answer, a both and answer. He both accepts the coin and rejects the coin. Which party are you in? He won't do it. He rejects political simplicity. Let's make this practical. What, you got the bracelet. What would Jesus do? Well, let's look at it this way. Or rather, don't do to Jesus what Jesus wouldn't do to himself. Don't say that, that particular political party, that specific political platform, that's Jesus's. Jesus is for that party, not for that party. All Christians or clever Christians or Bible-believing Christians, that's who they must vote for. Jesus wouldn't do it, so why are you doing it to him? Is Jesus a Christian or a liberal? There's no simplistic answer, and we cannot give a simplistic answer when it comes to matter of the state. We cannot be married to one political party or one political policy or one political approach. Is Jesus, are Christians liberal or conservative? Well, both. On certain issues, the world finds us incredibly liberal. On other issues, we're incredibly conservative. Well, I've got friends who live in the United States and glory did Trump and the far right take this to the extreme over and over and over again recently. I've never seen the U.S. so divided. I've never seen the church so politicized. There are still some famous Christian teachers and leaders who are pushing this agenda, and I can't listen to them anymore. For me, they've just lost their integrity. Jesus wouldn't do that. For one Christian, racial justice is of paramount importance. For another Christian, it's eliminating poverty. And for another Christian, it's protecting the environment. These are all good Christian things to chase after. So we have three brothers in Christ throwing their support behind three very different political policies. Which brother in Christ is not actually a Christian? Don't do that. Jesus wouldn't do that. You're mixing up Caesar and God. So Jesus resists being put into a box. Jesus resists political simplicity. He also resists both political complacency and primacy. What do I mean by that? Refuse political complacency. What does Jesus do? He asks for a denarius. Now, we know what a denarius is. Uh, we have them in museums. A lot of coin collectors have them. If you Google them on the internet, you can see tons of pictures of what a denarius is. It's a small silver coin. Jesus asks, whose image is on it? Now, the image Whose inscription is on it as well? Now, the image is, is of Tiberius Caesar. And the inscription on that coin reads, Tiberius Caesar, 
son of the god Augustus, Pontiff Maximum, high priest. What? So Jesus holds up a coin. The coin says, king, son of God, high priest. And then he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. What does he mean? He says, whose coin is it? Whose image? He uses the Greek word icon. Whose icon is on the coin? Caesar's. Who printed the coin? Who owns the coin? Who made the coin? Caesar. So give it to Caesar. So he doesn't say pay the taxes. He also doesn't say, how dare this idolatrous coin be in my hand? Ah, don't pay the taxes. He says, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and give back to God what is God's. Let's take a, a second to go on a tangent here. I think so many of us in this country are just exhausted with corruption that has been going on for far too long. And, and we're disappointed and we're angry. And many people are wanting to leave the country because of all this corruption. I want you to know that I feel your pain. I know your anger. I feel it too. And we desperately, desperately need good governance in this country. We need principled people, God-fearing people, men and women of integrity to step up to the plate and take the reins, particularly in areas of social justice. So as I continue, I want you to know that I'm speaking right into that today, right into our responsibility as South African citizens. In prepping for this message, I was listening to a podcast by um, Steve from Ryan from Jubilee, and he did a message on the same verse. And he points out that the Bible clearly instructs again and again that Christians be good citizens. And if we look at Titus 3 or if we look at Romans 13, they all say that we should obey the government. Think about this. If 2,000 years ago, Christ followers were instructed to pay the Roman tax, knowing what the Romans were like, knowing how corrupt the Romans were, knowing what the Romans would do with that money, and they were told to pay their tax, so can we. We can pay, we can follow their example and pay a tax to a government we might disagree with. Why? Okay, let me explain. There are all kinds of interest, interesting intricacies going on here. First, he is using the word image. He is implying only give to Caesar what has his image on it. It's his money, give it to him. But give to God what has his image on it. That's you. Whose image is on you? God's. God made you. God made you in his image. And when Jesus said that, he's doing a couple of things. Jesus is placing a limit on political authority. Jesus did something that has never been done before. He separated loyalty to Caesar and loyalty to God and treated them as two realms. He held out the possibility of being loyal to Caesar and not being loyal to Caesar's religion. He was giving the very first view on limited government. Up until this point, even amongst the Jews, the government, the kings, the rulers, all had divine authority and nobody could question them. Every king or ruler said, we have 
divine authority. And you cannot question us. You cannot oppose us. Every single government always said, the gods have chosen us. And the kings, many of the kings even said, I am God. They would say, I have absolute authority. Don't you question us. Jesus said, don't you give any government that. Give Caesar his money because it's his money. He made it. But don't give him the allegiance that he is asking for on that coin. Jesus changes the verb. They say, should we give to Caesar? They use the Greek word for gift, to present. And Jesus says, render. He says, give back. Give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And render, give back to God. Render to God the things that are God's. Give, give back to Caesar what he deserves. You see how ambiguous that is? What does a tyrant deserve? Well, maybe he can deserve his money back, but he certainly deserves some resistance as well. Jesus is saying, you can give Caesar some of what he wants, which is his money, but you cannot give Caesar ultimately what he wants, which is for you to be completely accepting of his system, his system of coercion, his system of injustice, his system of exclusion. He wants ultimate allegiance and he wants nobody to judge him or what he does, and we cannot give that to him as Christ follows. We cannot give that to any government. So does Jesus say revolt or does Jesus say pay your taxes. Jesus says neither in one sense, but he also says both. Limited government. Saying that you could not give to Caesar ultimate allegiance was revolutionary. But on the other hand, Jesus had not forbidden paying the tax either. Jesus is saying, obey the state, but have internal markers that say the state can go so far, but no further. The Bible is some very impressive righteous rebels. If you look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're told, down to, they're told to bow down to the king, and they say, you know what? You can actually throw us in the fire, rather. We're not going to do that. If you take the, the Hebrew midwives, the, the midwives in the book of Hebrews, they're, they're asked to kill the, the, the Jewish boys as they're born, and they say, oh, they lie. They lie to the authorities. They say, oh, man, these Jewish boys, they're so strong, eh? We couldn't do it. They just, you know, fought us off these babies. They lied. If you look at Daniel, Daniel's told, you're not allowed to pray anymore, Daniel. Daniel said, you can throw me in with the lions, but you're not going to stop me praying. Let's get closer to home. Let's look at some recent history. The, the Baptist minister, Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., he's asked not to do certain illegal things, and he says, you'll have to kill me to stop me, and they did kill him, and his revolution gained momentum. If you look at Corrie ten Boone, she hid Jews in her attic when the authorities told her she couldn't, risked her life. You see, there's a limit. The state has a limit. The state cannot force you to go against God. You were made in the image of God. You were set apart for him. That's why they were amazed. He was saying, I am a revolutionary, but not the kind of revolution you have ever seen before. And this goes against complacency and primacy. See, there were two groups that Jesus was actually opposing when he said, render to Caesar. There seems this Jewish group opposed Caesar completely by dropping out and disappearing. They went off into the desert and they hid. 
And this is the group we get the Dead Sea Scrolls from because they, they left the, the scrolls behind in some caves when they went and hid in the desert. But they're saying we're not paying our taxes because we're not going to be part of the system. That way, we, we're not going to deal with the corruption and the injustice. We, we're not going to have anything to do with it. Sound familiar? I hear people wanting to do this all the time. We want to live our own lives. We just want to be happy. We want to be unpolitical and, and just drop out of the system. Jesus won't allow, allow that. Jesus says no. Jesus says you must pay your taxes. Don't be that complacent. The other group who don't want to pay their taxes, they were the complete opposite. They were the zealots. They said, let's revolt. Jesus clearly is not going in that direction either. Jesus is against political complacency and primacy. And the idea that the primary way you can deal with injustice is through politics. Jesus is against that. And yet Jesus will not give up on the idea of the kingdom of God either. Jesus says, there is an authority that is an authority over Caesar. There is a kingdom of God coming. I'm bringing in the kingdom of God, but not in the way you think. That's why everybody was dumbfounded. In the narrow sense, I'm not political. In the broad sense, I'm incredibly political. In the broader sense of bringing in the kingdom of God, I'm going to deal with real poverty. I'm going to deal with real suffering. I'm going to deal with real injustice and real corruption and real hunger and real brokenness. I will. I'm not just bringing in an inner spiritual peace. Jesus says, bring me a denarius. Remember the inscription? There are two claimants, Tiberius and Jesus. Both say, I am king. Both say, I'm the son of God. And both say, I'm the high priest. But look at how completely different these kings are. One guy has all the coins in the world, literally. He has all the coins. He's got all the money in the world. He has all the silver. He's got all the coins in the world. The other king, he doesn't reach into his pocket and pull out a denarius. No, he had to ask somebody to bring him one. He had to ask for one. He doesn't even have one. And the denarius was not a valuable coin. It's not a big amount of money. The reason the tax was so hated was not because it was so burdensome. The, 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 the tax was actually the equivalent of, of a peasant's daily wage, one day's work for the lowest of the low peasant. So now we've got a king without a coin versus the king with all the coins. Reject political primacy. Jesus is not saying, when I bring my kingdom, I will replace Caesar. Jesus is not saying, I will be a better Caesar. A king without a coin, a king without any money at all. A king who says, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. This kind of king doesn't want to be a better king. He is bringing a whole different concept of kingship. Jesus doesn't want to start a political party or a political movement. He refuses political primacy. Jesus rattles political cages, but his main message is not political. He's introducing something that is altogether different. A revolution that revolutionizes revolutions. And therefore, he's bringing in a completely different concept 
of a revolution. His revolution revolts against revolts. It revolutionizes revolutions. Let me give you a real revolution. The kingdom of God. It's an opposite, upside down view. He says, look at me. I'm a king unlike any king you've ever seen. I'm the king without the coin because I've given my money away. I'm the king without power because I give it away right to the very end. I'm the king without recognition. I'm not recognized as king. I'm even rejected the time my father, at the end when my father turns his face from me. There's never been a king like this. There has never been a king so rejected. Jesus says, the climax of my kingship is not when I get elected, but when I get executed. Jesus says, I don't care about power or comfort or recognition or success. In fact, I'm giving them away and I'll spend my time with the marginal and I will love the poor and I will heal the sick and I will heal the hungry, feed the hungry. And he says, anyone who migrates into my kingdom will be like me. I'm not looking to be the king with all the coins. When we're in the kingdom of God, we no longer need these things either. We're no longer driven by power and success and comfort and recognition. They're fine. If you've got them, that's great. It's great if you get them, but they're not the goal. And you're not decimated if you don't get them. You no longer base your life decisions on them. You live for what'll do good. You spend your money on what'll do good. You make your decisions based on what's going to benefit others. Jesus is a king without a coin for your sake. On the cross, he took the poverty that you deserve so that you could have the wealth of God's acceptance and welcome. Jesus gave up everything on the cross. He died of rejection even when his father turned his face from him. The rejection you deserve. When you see that, when you see that all he did, you see that God can accept you now and that you can have the great wealth, the great recognition and the great comfort only when you're transferred out of this kingdom of this world and the things of this world don't dominate you. And you, are you finally free to love the people of this world sacrificially? Only when you have the power of those things broken over you Will you be sent out with an inner peace? But you know what? It doesn't stay in inner peace. You become a peacemaker. It doesn't stay inner because you can finally live like he lived. You can live for him and like him and your life can make a difference. You can make your decisions based on what people need, on what the people need, what, not on what you need. You finally have the power for that. If this world was all there is, then we should chase comfort and, and power and recognition and status and success. If this is all there is, then that's all there is worth chasing. Throw in a little bit of charity here and there, but that's all there is worth chasing. But what if there's another kingdom because of the king without a coin? The king who gave everything so that we could be taken in. Then and only then do I become a revolutionary. This revolutionizes all revolutions because other revolutions are about gaining power, about taking power, about seizing power. And his revolution is about giving it away and changing the world that way. A revolution that'll actually do something about hunger, oppression, 
corruption and injustice. Then go into all the world, go into the world that is enslaved, a world that is filled with hunger, poverty, and racism, and all those things that are the work of the devil. Go in and proclaim liberation to the captives, sight to the blind. Go into the world and tell all who are bound mentally, spiritually, and physically, the real liberator is here. How do you stop a revolution like Jesus? Our hope is not in a political party. Our hope is in the king without a coin. Give to God what belongs to God. My total allegiance belongs to Jesus. Where's your allegiance? Let's pray. Yeah, Father God, just as we look at this passage, Lord God, we also want to just look at our country. Father God, for so many of us that are just so upset with the things that have been going on, we pray in the precious name of Jesus that you bring up good leaders, that you bring up uh, men and women of integrity to lead the country. But more than that, Father God, open our eyes and open our hearts to what you're calling us to do, who you're calling us to be, and how we can be revolutionaries right in this moment in our country where we are with what we have. How can we make a difference? How can we help bring your kingdom into this world? Lord God, help us to be more like Jesus. Amen.